broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And then the second half of Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is praying to the Lord for the Lord to intervene and act on behalf of his people in this land that he had promised to give their descendants. So, Nehemiah is, has uncontainable sorrow in the king's presence. So much so that the king realizes what's going on. And in case you, like me, don't know the Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan is the month of March or April, and it's about four months after Nehemiah chapter 1. So, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He's this very trusted, has this very trusted position uh, to ultimately die before the king would die, right, if his food was poisoned. And Nehemiah has been praying that the Lord would grant him favor in the eyes of the king. And four months later, this sadness is still uncontainable for him. So much so that the king asks him, what is going on? And then we see in the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2, he says, I was very much afraid. Now we're going to see in a minute that there were several layers to this fear that Nehemiah was right to have. I can't help but wonder if Nehemiah had been praying and then, oh man, I guess this is my chance. His prayer right here, one commentator said, this is one of the most beautiful instances of spontaneous prayer in the Bible. It was probably not a long prayer. It was probably very short and sincere. Probably something like, God, I'm in big trouble. Help me. So then in verse 3, Nehemiah goes for it. I don't know if he thought maybe his life was already over. He says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it you want? Now, to understand the deeper level of probably fear that Nehemiah had, we need to understand some events that had taken place about a year and a half earlier. We have, fortunately for us, uh, two letters that are recorded in Ezra chapter 4, and I'm going to read them for you. In Ezra chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, it reads this. This is a copy of the letter they sent him to King Artaxerxes. Now this letter is probably written by the governors of the Trans-Euphrates area. That just means the area beyond the river. They wrote, The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. These people is referring to probably Ezra and the people who went back who were sent by King Artaxerxes about 13 years earlier. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid. And eventually, the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors 
in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We informed the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. So, the king looked into it, and in Ezra chapter 4, verses 17 to 23, we have his reply. It reads, Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order, and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? And then Ezra 23 says, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. So these letters give us a little bit of the history. They tell us a little bit of what caused this work of restoration on Jerusalem to come to a screeching halt. And it was nothing less than the direct orders of King Artaxerxes for fear that powerful kings would be restored in Jerusalem and that the social and economic order of that region would be upset to the detriment of his rule, of his wealth, and his reign. So when the king says to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 4, what is it you want? There are some powerful layers underneath that. Nehemiah then tells us, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have letters to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. Okay, so Nehemiah, in this brief moment, he prays to God. He feels this incredible weight of what is upon him. And he is asking that God is going to work in and through this king and do nothing less than do a 180-degree reversal of what the king had ordered 
to risk all of these things that the king looked into in these archives and realized these histories of these kings of Judah and risk all of those things. But then Nehemiah doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, hey, can I also have these letters of safe passage so that when the powerful governors of that region are asking me, why are you doing this? I can say, the king had sent me. And you know, you know what? There's also another thing I'm going to need. You know that national park? You know those, those gorgeous redwoods? Those would be just perfect for rebuilding the gates and the walls of this city that you fear being rebuilt. And you know, also, there's one other thing. I'm going to need a place to live there. So maybe I could also have a letter giving me permission to take timber from uh, the royal park to build my residence as well. And then look at this beautiful phrase in the second half of verse 8. Nehemiah says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. This is going to be a theme that we're going to see a little bit later in the second half of chapter 2. Continuing on in verse 9, it says, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent, an, sent army officers and cavalry with me. So he gets this royal escort as well. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, besides having fun names to say, are people we're going to encounter in the, in the second half of this chapter as well as in the coming weeks throughout the book of Nehemiah. And these men are probably governors. These are men of powerful positions. And we also know that throughout some other passages in the Old Testament, Tobiah was a very well-connected person with some of the Jewish leaders there in that area. So they are disturbed for whatever reason. It might be that it would ding their wealth as well or their rule in that area, that someone is promoting the welfare of the Israelites. So that concludes the first half of chapter 2. And then in verse 11, we get to the second half, which then takes place, again, about a thousand miles away back in Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So Nehemiah is riding an animal, and the few others who are with him set out on this night mission to inspect the walls and gates of Jerusalem. You can see here on this image there, that kind of green oblong shape, those are the walls that are eventually going to be rebuilt by Nehemiah and these different gates. And he comes out there by the valley gate on the west side, and then he's going to continue around counterclockwise about as far as he can go. So picking up in verse 13, he says, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining 
the wall. Finally, I turned back and returned through the valley gate. So Nehemiah goes until he can't go any further. The wall, the uh, terrain leading up to the city there is very, very steep, and so he hits a point where he can't go any further on his mount, but he inspects the walls as much as he is able to, all the while keeping his mission very close to the chest. Then in verse 16, he reveals his secret. It says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see what trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so we will no longer be in disgrace. Then here's our theme again in verse 18. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, unfortunately for Nehemiah, that's not the end of it. It's merely the beginning. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks in Nehemiah, as progress is going to be made on the walls, opposition is also going to mount against them. And we see that in verses 19 and 20. So when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab, who was probably a powerful leader of a number of Arab tribes, so he probably had kind of his own army traveling with him, when they heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this thing you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Notice that accusation that's there to this very sensitive issue. The king had already had and expressed his concerns about powerful kings and rebellion against him. And if you're anything like me, I would have responded, hey, 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 I have letters from the king. It's all right. It's all right. Here they are. But that's not how Nehemiah responds. In verse 20, he says, I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah knows very clearly that his mission is not going to succeed because King Artaxerxes has said he has permission to do it. He knows his mission is going to succeed because the God of heaven is the one who's going to grant success. And he knows that it was the God of heaven who was able to make this pagan king do a 180 on his position and really go against what would probably be in the king's best interests. And we're going to see that play out in the coming weeks. Last week, Pastor Chris, two weeks ago, Pastor Chris mentioned a little bit of a hesitation, a little bit of a fear to teach on Nehemiah. And I also shared that hesitation and fear. I think it's really easy for us to read about these incredible things that Nehemiah has done and is going to do. And we feel this disconnect. We're, we're probably not supposed to go home today and start building walls for most of us. That would be weird. 
And so it's easy for us to not really know what to do. And I think what's so interesting about Nehemiah is I think he gets something right that we so often get wrong. And I'm, I'm going to call this a straw man in the sky. So a straw man is a logical fallacy, okay? It's basically cheating when you're not playing by the rules and you distort or exaggerate or misrepresent someone else's opinion or position so that it's easier for you to respond to it. Now, you have probably all been victim to this as well as perpetrated this against other people. Uh, My wife and I, we had been married about three years and we realized that we were not good at fair fighting. And statements like, you always or you never were taking place more than they should have. Because we know if we're honest, almost nothing is an always or never statement. And so we sort of instituted this rule, okay, if someone says something like that, we can say, that's not fair. We know that. We so often want to distort or simplify other positions so that they're easier for us to respond to them because we don't really want to take the time to deal with them. And, and what I'm calling a straw man in the sky is is I feel like I have been confronted with this multiple times this week. I've seen this play out in different people's lives where what we want to do is we want to highlight a couple of the features of God, of his character, of of his nature that are most convenient to us so that then we feel permission to go on doing what we want to do. And I think if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's really easy to do this. It's really easy to focus on the love of God, but we don't really want to talk about his holiness. We want to have permission to keep doing what we want to do. And so we are very tempted to craft God as this straw man so it's easier for us, so we we lose less sleep over it. And I want to caution you that if, if you don't believe in God, you need to make absolutely certain that what you don't believe in is not a false representation of who he really is. If you want to know who who he really is and what he's really like, Take and read, but make sure you're getting it right. Don't risk and gamble with your eternal soul. I think for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is also easy for us to do, and so often it takes place in temptation, where we know better, but we kind of want to believe that little lie. In fact, it's been going on for a very long time. In the garden, it sounded like this. Did God really say Is God really going to be bothered if I watch that, if I say that, or if I do that thing? When we get this wrong, we're distorting who God actually is. And we do so at great peril to ourselves. But this is something that I think Nehemiah gets very correct here. And we see this as a couple truths coming out of that theme that we've seen. Nehemiah knew that God was gracious, that God was good. Nehemiah knew this in the middle of exile when he's serving a king who shouldn't be a king. These were, this was not how things were supposed to go, but he knew that God was gracious. He knew that God was powerful and God was able to answer his small prayer to work in and through what the king had said. And Nehemiah knew that God's hand was upon him that God was with him. 
And that makes all the difference in the world. And so while God might not be asking you to do some of the things that he asked Nehemiah to do, I think these truths about God were the foundation for Nehemiah. The foundation that enabled him to serve God faithfully to help bring restoration to Jerusalem. Remember, Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a prophet. He was a gifted administrator. He probably loved Excel sheets. That's that's who he was. But God placed him in this position of service to the king in this foreign city in Susa. And Nehemiah clinging to these truths about the nature and character of God, that is what enabled Nehemiah to do these great things for him, to faithfully serve and bring restoration to the city of Jerusalem. And there's kind of this incredible irony that's taking place here because this very thing that King Artaxerxes feared, that these people who wrote these letters in Ezra were warning him against, that powerful kings might come, that is exactly what's going to happen. I racked my brain a lot. I had a good conversation with, with Chris about this. Why do you think this happened now, at this weird time, at the very end of the chronology of the Old Testament? Why did God choose this moment to bring his people back and have Jerusalem restored? And I don't know exactly why. But what I suspect is that a big part of the reason was because God's people for 150 years had been fractured and were spreading out in exile in these foreign lands. And God chose this moment in his wisdom and in his providence to gather back his people. And these very gates that Nehemiah passed through, these very walls that he helped restore, one day, about 400 years later, Galatians tells us, in the fullness of time, the Son of God was going to walk through those gates. He was going to walk up the steps of the temple that had been restored. And he was going to clear out the money changers who had set up their their tables in the court of the Gentiles, where people like you and I who were not of Jewish descent, that was the closest they could get to worship God in the temple. He's going to clear those tables out and say, how dare you make my father's house a den of thieves? My father's house is to be a house of prayer. And then when people ask Jesus and they say, hey, by whose power and authority are you doing these things? He's going to say, it's a wicked generation that asks for a sign but I'll give you one. Destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. And John tells us that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body because those those fears that King Artaxerxes had were going to be true. Jesus was going to come and he was going to completely turn on its head all of history, upsetting social and economic orders and governments and kings and rulers But I want to suggest to you guys that we have some incredible similarities with Nehemiah. So in asking the question of what should we do, if Nehemiah knew that God was gracious, how much more should we know now that he has sent his son to die for us, the character of God? Jesus said, if you want to know what the Father's like, all you have to do is look at me. How much more should we know confidently the character of God that he is gracious? And beyond that, after Jesus died and rose again, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with his children, to dwell within us 
So if the hand of God was on Nehemiah, how much more is the hand of God upon you who are his children? That should be our foundation so that we are able to faithfully serve God wherever you are, in your family where God has placed you, at your job, in your neighborhood. Jesus has come and has reconciled lost sinners and has restored us to right relationship with him. And I love how 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this. Basically, Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5 that because of what Jesus has done for us, we now get to be ambassadors and representatives of Jesus. We get to have this ministry of reconciliation so that we should be people who are putting out fires, probably not creating them, We should be people who are treating others with kindness and dignity and respect in such a way that they're saying, what is different about that person? We should have a ministry of reconciliation because of what Jesus has done for us. And I want to suggest to you that that is how we appropriately respond to what we see in Nehemiah, that the same God of heaven that Nehemiah served is the same God who sent his son for you and for me.